Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books and Sociology podcast channel on the New Book Network. Hi, I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Priya Kandaswamy, author of the book Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Civilization from Reconstruction to Warfare Reform. Hello, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in the project. Sure. So my name is Priya Kandaswamy. I'm a scholar who works at the intersections of ethnic studies, gender studies, um, and queer studies. Until pretty recently, I was a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Mills College. Um, And in the past few months, I've transitioned to being the academic program director at Mount Tamil Pius College, which is a college program that offers an associate's degree to incarcerated students at San Quentin State Prison in California. Um, I came to this project in a number of ways. I would say maybe the seeds of it are um, really in being a child during the 1980s and being kind of inundated with a very anti-welfare discourse that um, relied a lot upon a lot of images and narratives of women on welfare, particularly women of color, particularly black women on welfare as um, people who were sort of cheats, who were leeching off the system, who were using government support as a way to support their like illicit sexuality, who were living sort of um, outside of marriage, um, who were sexually promiscuous, who were having too many children, right? Like sort of all of these things that welfare came to be associated with in the 1980s. So I think growing up in a culture where that was very much a part of the public discourse, um, I always had a lot of questions, right? Like about why people believed stories like that. I mean, like there's stories that have had tremendous force in American politics, but there are also stories that are, I don't know, so easy to see that they're not true, right? Like they don't have any factual basis. They also are just kind of ridiculous um, in so many different ways. And they don't really, um, anyone I think who has a sort of reality, right? Where you've had to grapple with poverty in any way at all can see um, that the stories are, are entirely fictitious and yet they have been kind of the basis for so much policy change Um, in the post-civil rights era. So I was always kind of curious about like, why do people um, 
believe narratives that are so patently false? And how do those narratives come to have so much political force? Um, my dissertation many years ago um, kind of picked up on this and focused on the 1996 welfare reform law um, and particularly the use of discourses of family to mobilize support for the law. And I think one of the things I really focused on in that work was this fundamental contradiction between a law that sort of, you know, ostensibly is promoting family values and, you know, in the law, right, like family values are really defined as a heteronormative family with a male head of household, right, a woman whose primary job is um, to be in the household, to be mothering, to be caring for her children. Um, so a law that's sort of framed under that rubric, but then the policies the law is actually enacting are policies that force um, welfare recipients to do um, work outside the home in exchange for very meager welfare benefits, right? So this, on the one hand, this idea of idealizing, right, a certain kind of motherhood, but also creating policy that makes that motherhood impossible because in order to receive any kind of benefits, people were being forced into workfare programs. So one of the things sort of I noted in, in thinking about that contradiction is that that contradiction is very similar to the practices that were um, employed in relation to freed women in the Reconstruction era. So, um, and that's really where, where the book project goes, right? So the book looks at how the Freedmen's Bureau, right? The institutions that were um, charged with kind of bringing formerly enslaved people into the institutions of citizenship emphasize both marriage promotion and forced labor, um, particularly in relation to black women. And so, you know, I really saw a lot of parallels there between um, the that and the 1996 welfare reform law. And I was really interested in, in kind of pursuing or thinking about how turning to that history and sort of thinking more deeply about that history as part of the history of the US welfare state um, might shift um, or sort of shed new light on how we thought about public assistance in the 1990s. And I would argue how we continue to think about public assistance um, in the contemporary period. Could you um, explain your method in terms of how you collected and analyzed your research? Sure. Um, so the method was really like, it was really the most exciting part of the project for me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, as I said, I'm an interdisciplinarily trained scholar, so I'm not a historian by training. So really, um, like one of the things like I think um, I think about when I think about method is um, because I am interdisciplinarily trained is really trying to find methods that are appropriate to a question. So rather than being like wed to a particular way of doing research, you know, I came to the project with a question and then I really sort of picked and drew from the kinds of methodologies I was familiar with to develop a method for the book. And so the book is largely, I think, especially the kind of the new research in the book is largely archival historical research. Um, most of it comes from, uh, you know, documents in the National Archive, um, documents from the Freedmen's Bureau, also some documents around um, the distribution of widows' pensions um, after the Civil War. Um, primarily write the documents that I had access to and really that most of us have access to when we're thinking about trying to 
record the history of these this period are um, uh, documents that were um, kind of created by government institutions or kind of records that were really written by white people, right? And really written by white state officials. Um, and those are the primary sources that I use in the book as well. And so one of the things that, you know, I think a lot about in the book and I talk about in the book is like, what can we learn from those records, right? So I think, you know, there's a real desire to sort of retrieve people's stories from those records. And I kind of want to be really cautious about that because I kind of think we can't like what, a lot of what I look at in the book is, right, what, you know, for example, um, you know, a bureau officer wrote down about an interaction with a set of people or what, um, you know, a labor contract prescribes um, for what an employment relationship might look like. And that those documents are really um, structured by the people who are writing them. Um, and they don't necessarily tell us very much about how, um, the people who were sort of subject to those policies experience those policies, but I do think they tell us a lot about the state itself, right? And about what state officials were thinking, about how state power works, um, you know, and about how particular ideas about what it meant to be a good citizen, a good citizen, and how race and gender shaped those ideas were constructed. Um, so I sort of combine, right, looking at historical archival documents with, um, a kind of critical cultural studies analysis um, of the discourse that's employed in those um, texts in order to really, um, I guess, give a history of like concepts like citizenship, concepts like vagrancy, um, and to try to chase, trace historically how the meaning of those concepts have shifted and changed. Could you explain to the audience um, how you as an outsider, not being a Black woman, mm -hmm. what could you bring to this that someone who's in the culture could bring? What, what's the difference in, in your spin? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that like, um, I don't know, there's something in particular as an outsider I bring to it, right? Like I actually think like, um, I don't know, insider knowledge is really valuable, right? And, um, you know, as someone who kind of, you know, I guess I would say like, I came to this project um, in a different way, right? So like, to me, I was interested in a policy that impacts, right? Lots of different people, right? So the 1996 welfare reform law was a policy that targeted black women, but it also targeted really all working class people it targeted immigrants. Um, and I was sort of interested in understanding that policy, but like my interest in understanding that policy took me into African-American history. And so I guess what I might say to that question is that like my approach is not really um, in the book. It's not really to tell the stories of black women because I'm not sure that I'm the right person to do that. And I'm also not sure that what's in the archives I looked at lends itself to telling that story, but what I do want to highlight is how like this kind of persistent anti-Blackness over centuries has shaped the kinds of policies we make um, around managing poverty into the contemporary period. And I also want to make an argument that if we really want to think about how women in particular have been um, kind of treated by the state, that we can't 
simply look at the history of how white women have been treated by the state and that actually there's a lot to be learned and that really historically we should take the experiences of black women as central to the history of state practices regulating women's lives. Um, and so I think in there, like for me, or like when I think about my own social location, part of what that is about is um, understanding that like um, the history of the United States, like it's not the history of white people and then there's black history, right? But that like actually right, black history is foundational to understanding the history of the United States. And that like, when we think about this country as a country that right is founded on violence against black people that has been built through the exploitation of black labor, that then all of us, you know, who have some sort of social location in the United States have to grapple with that exploitation have to grapple with that violence and have to think about how that shapes the society that we live in today. In the book, you describe the perception of black women as quote, bad mothers and irresponsible homemakers. Tell us more about this description. Sure. Um, so uh, particularly in the reconstruction era, um, when we think about this kind of, right, the bad mother or the irresponsible homemaker, a lot of this was tied to this idea that um, when, um, you know, formerly enslaved people came into citizenship, that they had to sort of demonstrate their deservingness of the rights of citizenship. And so even when, you know, you look at like texts by or sort of policies or practices of government officials that are sort of seemingly kind of like liberal for the period, a lot of their focus is on whether or not freed people were ready for citizenship or what do we have to teach people in order for freed people to practice citizenship correctly. And in relation to women, um, a lot of that had to do with like this idea that um, freed women didn't know how to be like properly domestic and that they had to be educated into domesticity. Um, and that a lot of that had to do with educating women into how to care for their children or how to keep their home. Um, this was obviously really like contradictory, right? Because a lot of the policy that was being put into place at that time was also right, forcibly separating women from their children, was making it difficult for people to materially sort of, um, provide for their families, was forcing women to work in various ways. And so I think part of what, um, like I think it's important to think about when we think about those representations is like, so those representations are one thing, but what is that juxtaposed against in terms of the policies that are actually being enacted, right? And what does that sort of difference do, right? So on the one hand, you know, you have this idea that black women were bad mothers, but actually the state is putting people in a position where they can't really um, enact kind of normative motherhood as it was defined for white women, that they have to learn how to mother in different ways, or they have to develop community practices of mothering that enable them to care for their children, despite the many obstacles that they're facing. Um, but that all those practices that they develop become, in the eyes of the state, more evidence of bad motherhood. So it becomes kind of this, this cyclical thing that rationalizes, right? Um, 
continuing, right, to deny people the full benefits of citizenship. I was wondering, did you take under consideration social class when you were looking at documents and defining? Because Black women from different regions of the United States experienced different situations. Everybody was able to uh, come at different experiences based on social class. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. And um, I mean, the cases that I look at in the book are primarily um, looking at the way that, um, you know, freed women in the South who were seeking assistance from the Bureau, right? So people who are, um, you know, who have been right relatively impoverished in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, are treated by the Bureau. So I'm really looking at, you know, a, a particular class and a particular location and particular experience of um, people who were recently freed, right? Like, so I think there are a lot of other experiences we could think about, right? For example, um, Black women in the North who had, um, who were not, right, enslaved in sort of the recent, in their recent history, right? We could think about people who had access to more resources. Um, you know, the project is really focused on, right, the treatment of people who are seeking public assistance. So it is looking at a particular class of women, though I also think that a lot of the representations um, that kind of get deployed or that are fueling um, policy during this time period, um, they are sort of applied to women of a certain class, but they also expand beyond that, right? So like, for example, one of um, the chapters of the book talks about the policing of vagrancy um, for Black women. And I think, you know, in that chapter, um, you know, I talk a lot about how one of the ways that like vagrancy laws were um, employed against Black women um, was that really, right, Black women's presence in public space was often read as a sign of prostitution, right? So that, you know, um, white people in public space policed Black women's bodies because they really saw Black women in public space as engaged in prostitution, no matter what they were doing. And I think that that's something that cut across class during that time period. So you see, right, like some of the techniques that are talked about in the book get applied across class. And some of them, I think, are very specific to the experiences of people who are seeking public assistance. Um, the 1866 picture of the marriage of the soldier at Vicksburg. Mm -hmm. Tell your audience your interpretation because someone else could look at it and see a Black woman going into middle class marrying a soldier. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I think about that image is um, to think about it, right, as an image that circulated in largely, like for a largely white readership um, of what freedom might look like, right? And so um, in that image, you know, and for people who maybe can't see the image, it's, you know, it's an image of two freed people um, kind of getting, you know, getting married. They're sort of surrounded. Um, you're being married by a white person um, and they're surrounded by other people. Um, it's a very, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is it's not a celebratory image exactly, right? Like it's a very kind of austere and reserved image. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of use my reading of the image as a way of 
um, thinking about how much of the politics of how the state regarded freedom during this time period was a, a kind of containment, you know? So, um, so on the one hand, you couldn't look at the image as right um, and an image of right, like access to marriage, which was something that enslaved people didn't have, right? So it is something that is like hugely important and a very um, kind of remarkable achievement in the historical context, but it is also um, a marriage that looks very much like the kind of normative ideas of gender that were circulating as, um, as kind of, you know, as white uh, middle-class ideals of like what marriage and family should look like, right? And so there's a way in which um, it is both, right? Like access to something, right? Access to rights that people didn't have, but it is also a way of containing how people might have wanted to define their families or how people might have wanted to define their sexualities or how people um, might have chosen to express their freedom, right? It's a, an image that, you know, makes freedom look like something that's very palatable to white middle-class norms. Um, we have to consider the fact that women of all race, racial groups, they were really not free to get a job paying a livable wage. So why not marriage for Black women? Yeah, I don't think my argument is that Black women shouldn't, shouldn't have gotten married or that marriage wasn't, um, some, was something that people shouldn't desire. Um, it's more trying to think about what was the structure of marriage. So when we think about the history of the welfare state and how marriage has been employed in it, right? Marriage and the heteronormative family that it secures um, for white families has frequently been a way of accessing resources. So when people tell the story of the United States um, welfare state, um, it frequently starts in the progressive era or the new deal. And you, you see the development of a welfare state that's really built around um, shoring up the institution of marriage and shoring up particular um, gendered roles within marriage. So things like the family wage become kind of central to how welfare is imagined. Um, you see men receiving, right, being treated as breadwinners, receiving, um, you know, unemployment, receiving social security, you see women being treated as dependents frequently, both with the ADC program and the social security program. Um, you see kind of, right, subsidizing working class white people to um, be able to buy homes and achieve a certain kind of middle class norm of the family. Um, and what I want to highlight in the book, though, is that marriage has another history in relation to the welfare state. So in the history of the Freedmen's Bureau, um, marriage was certainly something that was strongly advocated for by bureau officials, but marriage didn't come with, right, all of the benefits that, you know, in the 1930s, for example, the white working class got through marriage. Instead, right, in this time period, and I would argue consistently, right, into the 1990s, marriage became a way of enforcing obligations, right? So rather than say that, you know, um, a society that enslaved people should be responsible for reparations 
to those people. Um, the Bureau argued that people should get married and form self-sufficient households that took care of themselves and that inequality was privatized then onto the household. Um, similarly, marriage became a vehicle for, um, for criminalizing people, right? So like with access to marriage also came the criminalization of people for adultery or for um, not paying child support or um, for not having right families that looked a certain way or um, marriage also became right the basis of one's standing or one's legitimacy as, um, as citizens. So really what I'm trying to show is historically how for white people marriage was right a platform for accessing rights and resources and in relation to black people marriage became a vehicle for enforcing obligation. Um, and I think that that's really the point I want to make about marriage, that marriage um, has this sort of these, these two sides to it. For some people, it guarantees right privacy and rights. And for other people, it's been a way that privatization of inequality has been secured. Could you discuss some of the information you talked about desertion as a social problem within the Bureau that they were trying to solve? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that happened during this period, right, during the Reconstruction era, is that as marriage became enforced, right, uh, there were, it then became like this norm that people had to adhere to and people who didn't adhere to that norm um, or weren't seen as adhering to that norm um, were often, right, criminalized or expected to um, kind of either return to marriage or pay um, child support back to um, someone who they'd been with before. So, you know, the idea of desertion during this um, time period was, you know, really elevated by the Bureau as this anxiety that like, you know, essentially that families weren't staying together, right? Like that men were deserting their wives and then, you know, and, and the anxiety about that was really that then those women and their children would become the responsibility of the state, right? And that um, state or public resources were going to um, women and children um, who should be cared for by a male head of household. And so the anxiety about desertion, um, so one, like I think desertion itself was, you know, it's difficult to tell like if that was really a problem, right? So like in one sense, I'm sure that there were women who were deserted by their husbands. And in another sense, um, social relationships, I think, were very complicated during this time period as a product of slavery. Um, and a lot of times people were, you know, men were regarded as deserting their wives when, in fact, they had been like separated, right, through, through slavery or their lives had been transformed in different ways through the social circumstances that they were in. Um, and so desertion wasn't necessarily like, like a malicious, like, I'm just deserting people, but it was actually a product of circumstance. Um, and then I think, you know, sort of the important point about desertion is that, you know, desertion wasn't really about the well-being of women and children. It was about um, wanting to have an austere state, right? So wanting to make sure that the state wasn't using public resources to support people, but rather that, you know, a male head of household was doing that. Well, let's bring it back to present day situation. Mm -hmm. What, what are you, what do you want the audience to know about the connection 
between reconstruction and welfare reform today? Um, well, I guess if we went back to that question that I was talking about at the beginning of, you know, which is essentially like why, I mean, why do Americans kind of as a society hate public assistance so much? Um, I think the way the book pursues that question is to ask people to think about um, how, right, the history of public assistance is kind of deeply connected to addressing, right, kind of the failures of Reconstruction, right, the failures to incorporate freed people into, um, you know, or the failures to really guarantee freedom for freed people is, I guess, the way I would say that. Um, and so kind of thinking about today, um, I guess kind of in a, in a scholarly way, one of the like the big takeaways I would like people to have from the book is to really think about the history of the welfare state differently, right? Um, I think a lot of the history of the welfare state frames it as something that originated uh, with kind of the regulation of white working class families and that, you know, um, black people and later other people of color kind of came to be regulated by the welfare state only right in the post civil rights era. And so I, I really would like the book to kind of shift our timeframes a little bit and think about like, actually there is this very long history um, of regulating black families and denying black people public assistance um, that has shaped the entire history of the welfare state and to locate that as like a very central piece of um, the history of social welfare policy. So I think that's one thing. I think um, another thing, like maybe in a more political sense is um, kind of pushing at like how we think about what gender is and what, you know, and how gender functions. And so I think a lot of the book is really trying to get us to think about um, gender is not just about kind of these categories of men and women, but gender as a racial category or gender as a vehicle through which race gets constructed. Um, and so the book really highlights how, you know, gender frequently works to secure racial hierarchies. And I think we can talk about that in the contemporary period as well, right? In a society um, where, um, you know, our discourse about race is often that like, you know, at least in, in I guess a more liberal context in the United States that, you know, we've achieved some sort of multicultural racial equality. I think we can think about the ways in which constructions of gender actually link us back to um, much more hierarchical constructions of race. And so how we can sort of um, on the one hand sort of talk in ways that presume racial equality, but also be reinforcing very longstanding racial hierarchies. Um, and then I, I think like, for me, I, I guess a third thing would be um, really thinking about, you know, welfare politics um, and as central to struggles for racial justice, to feminist struggles and to queer struggles, right? And I think a lot of um, one of the, or one of the things the book does is really try to get us to think through what is the relationship between constructions of the heteronormative family and state power, right? And how do those two things go hand in hand? I would like for you to end with the story of 
Mrs. Fanny Valley and Mr. Joseph Valley. They were married in 1897. Why didn't she receive a pension? Um, well, there were a lot of reasons that Black women didn't receive pensions um, during this time period. And it had to do with uh, ambiguity about one, whether people were married, and then also this persistent suspicion um, that Black women were um, lying about their marriages, right? So when you think about the pension um, process, uh, people had to demonstrate first that they were married, which was often very difficult for formerly enslaved people because under slavery, there was no legal record of marriages because legally people were denied the right to marry. Um, and then with emancipation, right? Marriages were often um, informal. There were a lot of like contradictory things around marriage. Like in some states, people were just married because they lived together, but, there, but then, you know, in the context of pensions, those marriages weren't recognized. There was a lot of ambiguity in the record keeping around marriage and that often functioned. Um, whereas maybe like if a white woman was applying for a pension, that kind of ambiguity, if there was similar ambiguity in record keeping, people would have kind of looked the other way. For Black women, those things were really scrutinized. Um, and then there were all these questions about, um, about moral character, right? And so, you know, there were these ideas that like people, well, if someone had an, you know, the book talks about a lot of different stories of, of Black women in relation to pensions. And I think one of the things that like, taking all the stories together shows is that really there was this like very strong objective of denying people pensions. So like in some cases it is that, you know, well, um, you know, you were married, but now that you're living with someone else, that marriage is invalidated. Um, and then in some cases it's like, well, this person that you were living with because you were married to someone else before your marriage is invalidated. Right. So this is a kind of persistent way in which, right. Um, marriages, you know, could be used as a vehicle for enforcing responsibility on people. But when people sought pensions, right, or sought a right that came with marriage, um, their marriages were consistently um, invalidated. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. Can you tell the audience what you're working on next? Um, well, I am, uh, I have a couple of things from the book that I, I'd like to do a little more work on. So the book in its early stages also, or sort of in its early chapter also thinks about the relationship between the welfare state and settler colonialism. So I'm really interested in thinking about, right, how ideas of, you know, family um, pursue, like how ideas of family um, within construction of the welfare state have been used as a tool of settlement and settler colonialism. and and thinking about that in relation to um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and how native people have been treated through the welfare state. So I think that's one thing that I'm thinking about. I also, um, you know, I'm, have recently just been really focused on um, in teaching and thinking about different ways of teaching. So um, I recently took a position um, working in prison education and really um, trying to think through kind of the complexities of what it means to offer education through carceral institutions and what abolitionist perspectives um, or practices of education inside of prisons might look like. So I think that's another thing that's really um, occupying my mind these days. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's really nice to get to talk to you.